I'm going to be calling on the Puritans to help us quite a bit because I think what you will discern if you hear and pray these words and think them in your heart as I pray them, um, the richness, the depth, uh, just the absolute uh, uh, depth with which they knew their God and with which they prayed to their God, I think that you will hear in their prayers that, that the Puritans didn't know the meaning of superficial prayer. They didn't know the meaning of a token prayer. They didn't know the meaning of shallow prayer. Their prayers were deep and profound and rich and substantive. And I, I'm praying that this will rub off on us. I really am. And uh, I love that if you don't have that with you, I, I was meaning to bring it, but the little book entitled The Valley of Vision, it's actually an anonymous collection of Puritan prayers. Anonymous, so that you don't know which Puritan prayed this prayer, and I like that. Because it just leaves it and it gives it sort of a nomic quality, a timeless quality for us to always enjoy, always appreciate, and we give glory to God for it. So let's, uh, as, we, as we always do, let's pray together, and I will read this prayer, which is entitled, In Prayer, talking about what happens in prayer. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, in prayer, I launch far out into the eternal world, and on that broad ocean, my soul triumphs over all evils on the shores of mortality, time with its gay amusements and cruel disappointments never appears so inconsiderate as then. In prayer, I see myself as nothing. I find my heart going after thee with intensity, and I long with vehement thirst to live for thee. Blessed be the strong gales of thy spirit that speed me on the way to the new Jerusalem. In prayer, all things here below vanish, and nothing seems important but holiness of heart and salvation of others. In prayer, all my worldly cares, fears, anxieties disappear and are of little significance as a puff of wind. In prayer, my soul is inwardly exalting with lively thoughts at what thou art doing in your church. And I long that thou shouldest get for thyself a great name from sinners returning to Zion. In prayer, I am lifted above the frowns and flatteries of life and in taste of heavenly joys. Entering into the eternal world, I can give myself to thee with all my heart to be thine forever. In prayer, I can place all my concerns in thy hands to be entirely at thy disposal, having no will or interest of my own. In prayer, I can intercede for my friends, ministers, sinners, church, thy kingdom come with greatest freedom, ardent hopes as a son to his father, as a lover to the beloved. Help me to be all prayer and never to be ceasing prayer. Amen. The prayer life of the Puritans, far and away, stands across the historical landscape of the Christian church and of the history of the church as preeminent. It is not only that they prayed often 
It's not only that they prayed on a, on a regular basis, but that their prayers were above everything biblical, God-centered, Christ-centered, and Bible-saturated. You know, I've heard of IHOP, the International House of Prayer, that they have 24-hour prayer going on nonstop. However, much of their prayers are unbiblical and at times even heretical. All the, all the, the prayer that goes on there doesn't even compare with the fact that Puritan prayer, and I hope our prayer, will be the same as their prayers, full of theology, full of ardent attitudes, full of sobriety, and full of spiritual maturity. Prayer has a way of maturing us, doesn't it? Just like the Puritan prayed, it lays us bare before him. We are as nothing before him. All of our cares, they vanish before him. All of our heart is open before him in prayer. And as we look at prayer, again, I will come back to Puritans time and time again to help us in a prayerless age. The Puritans are so distinct because of their prayers. Many Puritans spent hours in prayer. Jonathan, Hour, Jonathan Edwards, hours before going to church in prayer. Hours. Spurgeon would get up before every Sabbath, he would say. We'll forgive him for that, but every Sabbath morning he would get up for hours of prayer to walk into a church that was in, in earnest prayer for the sermon. I tell you, we are more worried about whether the Xbox is going to work in the youth group this morning than laboring and crying out to God to deliver and to save the youth of our church. So we have to begin with a, a sobering admonition, and that is the problem of the neglect of prayer. We have to begin here because we have to be honest about our failure to pray if we're going to succeed and to excel in our prayer. Like with many other disciplines, whether you're thinking about sporting events or you're thinking about actors' guilds or you're thinking about singing or parenting or bodybuilding or exercising or whatever, whatever discipline you can think about, you will never succeed unless you think about what is causing you to fail. And the same thing holds true for prayer. Unless, like every other discipline, we are willing to be honest about our neglect of prayer, we will never excel in our prayer. So the very first thing I want to talk about as we look at the burden of prayer as a whole, and that's really my aim here, to consider the burden, the need to pray. Where does it arise from and how does it work? The number one thing is this. The burden of prayer, or my, the first thing is this, that the burden of prayer begins by acknowledging our neglect of prayer. Again, we have to begin here. And what is amazing about the neglect of prayer is the reality of it. The reality of neglected prayer is that we neglect our own souls. That we are neglecting our souls and leaving our souls impoverished and leaving our souls spiritually anemic in the process. If you ask any nutritionist expert, they will tell you 
That one deficiency can lead to literally thousands of effects on the human body. We don't have that many nutrients for the human body. There's only a couple of dozen of nutrients that we have for the physical body. But the consequences, the deficiency for neglecting the nutrients are manifold, hundredfold. One nutritionist says that there are thousands of consequences for being deficient in one single nutrient of the body. And the same thing holds true for prayer. You neglect prayer and the consequences are literally a thousand to one. If you neglect prayer, you can rest assured, you can guarantee that you will have deficiencies practically in every area of your life. Deficiencies in holiness, deficiencies in assurance, deficiency in joy, in sanctification, in zeal, in sobriety, and in spiritual warfare. Neglect prayer and all of your relationships will suffer as a Christian. Your marriage, your families, your fellowship, your culture, your church. If we're honest, it is easy to neglect prayer. It is so easy in our hurried world. It is so easy in our world of instantaneous download and instantaneous application and instantaneous gratification where everything is at one click of a button. Who has time to pray in a world like that. I was recently listening to a chapel message of a popular seminary where one of the alumni went back to speak to the student body, speaking to prospective pastors who were about to enter into the ministry. His subject, the neglect of prayer. He said that it is, particularly, it, it, it is particular to pastors that they neglect prayer. It is, it is pastors have a, a, a special danger of neglecting prayer in the ministry. He talked about how that when pastors get too busy, when their, schedule, their schedules fill up, when the counseling, counseling sessions are overwhelming, and when the sermon has to be written every week, usually the first thing that goes is prayer. And I can confess of being guilty of that, of letting prayer go. The Puritan Samuel Chadwick is the one who said, hurry is the death of prayer. Because prayer is just that. Stopping, acknowledging, being still and recognizing that He is God. Prayer is God's way of telling us how much we need Him. But pastors, like everyone else, must give prayer a prominent place in their lives. Let me give you two reasons for that. Number one, I've already mentioned. Number one is this, that, that the deficiency of neglecting prayer is the consequences of that, that is, are a thousand to one. The second thing is this, on the flip side of that, prayer is too important and prayer is too cru crucial for the success of the ministry, for the success of the believer's life, his spiritual life. There are too many benefits to prayer, to neglect prayer, so that if we are neglecting prayer, that means we really don't believe in the benefits of prayer. And it hasn't dawned on us how intricate prayer ought to be in our lives and how effective prayer is in our lives. Let me give you just a couple scriptures on this. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to show you that for the Apostle Paul, he assumed that prayer was effective for his own life. Matter of fact, he banked on it. Matter of fact, he banked his life on it and often depended so much 
on the prayers of the saints. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 through 11. We just obviously finished this book, and so you're familiar. We're going back to the beginning. But um, listen to the need. Listen to the, where the burden of prayer arose in the life of the Apostle Paul. He says, For we don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and will deliver us, he upon whom we have set our hope. Now notice that Paul's hope is on God and also connected to prayer. He says, and he will yet deliver us. You also, joining and helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor that has been bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Paul banked on the fact that his safety was connected to the prayers of the saints. Perhaps you and I are, are out of touch with this because our lives are never readily in danger for the gospel. But I can tell you right now, Many a missionary would come in here and tell you, were it not for the prayers of our church back home, I don't know how we would have survived. Not only does he pray for safety, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, but he also prays for unction. This is one of the reasons why Spurgeon, while he was preaching, he would have a prayer service going on in the bottom floor beneath the pulpit. There would be a group of people under him praying praying that God would give him unction, praying that God would give him power to speak the word of God. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18 and 20. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. You start getting into these prayer passages, and you just start seeing how pervasive the call to prayer is, but we'll get to that in a moment. Verse 19, he says, pray on my behalf, watch this, that, the, that utterance may be given to me in opening my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. In other words, Paul knew that courage didn't come naturally to him. He knew that in the face of his persecutors, his temptation would be to shrink away, to keep his mouth silent, to speak no longer about this Jesus. So he's praying, pray that God would give me unction, power, boldness as I speak the word of God. You've heard of the Great Awakening. Much of what happened during the Great Awakening began in Connecticut through the preaching of Jonathan Edwards as he delivered now one of the most famous messages in church history, namely, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And that, that sermon touched my life many, many years ago as a young believer, and it has touched the lives of countless Christians. If you've not read it, you ought to read it just to see how Far we have fallen from Edwardsian 
an Edwardsian vision of God. I mean, you are just left struck by the majesty and power and wrath and grace and mercy of God. But there's something that a lot of people don't know, that when he delivered that message back in, oh, 1741, I believe it was, that there had been a group of women who had gathered, knowing that Jonathan Edwards was coming to preach, and they had gathered for days and days, fasting and praying that God would speak through Jonathan Edwards and that he would give him unction to deliver his word. Little did they know that their prayers joined in helping Edwards deliver a sermon that would reverberate throughout the history of the church for 400 years (laughs) so that we are still affected by it today. The burden to pray, therefore, comes from and acknowledges the neglect of prayer. We have a great duty to pray, but we also have a duty to pray because of this. And this is my second point. The burden of prayer also arises out of acknowledging the effectiveness of prayer, the effectiveness of prayer, that we really believe that our prayers are doing something. See, we can swing too far in the Calvinistic scale so as to think, well, God is sovereign. What does my prayer have to do with anything? And we've seen the bumper stickers, right? The pow- I believe in the power of prayer. Pray- prayer, you know, works. And we're theologically quick to correct that and say, no, God works. Prayer is just the way he does it. But we need to be careful that we don't deflate the biblical account of the effectiveness of prayer. And think, well, God is sovereign and sort of adopt a fatalistic view of prayer. Okay, Sarah, Sarah. God is sovereign, and if he's a sovereign God, then what do my prayers really mean anyway? No, that's not the way that, 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 that men like the Puritans and Edwards and Spurgeon and all of these men of God that have gone before us, that's not the way they looked at prayer. They saw prayer as the ordained means of God's sovereign ends. They knew that it was God's means of accomplishing his great providential work on planet Earth. And that's the way that we have to look at it as well. So the burden to pray is bound up in the effectiveness of prayer. The Old Testament is full of real-life examples of prayer, its effectiveness, how it worked. For example, if you look to Isaiah 36 and 37, there you will find the account of Hezekiah. You remember what happened there in Isaiah 36 and 37? I know you all remember off the top of your head. But I will remind you if you don't. Hezekiah has been given a dire warning from the king of Assyria, Sennacherib. He sends his cupbearer, Rabshakeh, to tell the delegation of Hezekiah that they will die and that they will invade and that they will destroy Judah and that they will eat their dung and make them drink their wine or drink their urine like wine. (laughs) In other words, they're going to come and destroy and lay Judah waste just completely desolate the land. And also, uh, uh, Sennacherib had, had instructed through Rabshakeh, his cupbearer, he had, stru- he had instructed the people of Judah, do not listen to Hezekiah. Do not listen to him because he will try to make you trust in the Lord. Isn't that amazing? What evil 
saying, don't listen to Hezekiah. He'll deceive you, Isaiah 36, 14 and 15. He will deceive you, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. So Hezekiah responds by sending a group of people to go and talk to Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet. He knew it's time to consult the man of God. What for? Because he knew of the effectiveness of prayer. And so listen to Isaiah 37, 4. Perhaps the Lord your God will hear the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, Isaiah, offer a prayer for the remnant. You see that? He knew the way to victory right now is prayer. And he goes on in chapter 37 to pray to the Lord himself. And you know what happened at the end of the day. God sent his angel, and the angel laid the Assyrians waste and made a slaughter out of his enemies. Ray Ortland, on his commentary in Isaiah, says this about Hezekiah, that he turned to Hezekiah in deep need. You ever need to pray to God in deep need? That type of prayer is effective, brethren. This is what he says, Ray Ortland saying, to his, to his lasting credit, Hezekiah gets real with God, unlike his father Ahaz. He goes into the house of the Lord. He understands what reality matters. The reality that matters is that is his relationship to the, not his relationship to the king of Assyria, but his relationship to the king of heaven. He says, he can see that nothing, nothing will suffice but what is directly and immediately of God. His faith is no facile optimism. We know that because he tears his clothes and he puts sackcloth, he is soberly realistic about what is happening. He discards appearances. He turns to God in deep need. See, that is what prayer does. It does away with, with facile appearance. It does away with fake Christianity, and it gets real with God. It acknowledges, oh God, help me. Lord, help my children. God, save my children. I fear they don't like church. I fear that they don't like heaven either. I fear for their souls. And it's in that hour of deep need that we are to get real with God like Hezekiah and go to God in need and go to God in prayer. So, we too then, we feel the burden to pray when it seems like all hope is lost. Our back is up against the wall. The bills are mounting up. The finances don't reach. The family is falling apart. And so what do we do? We pray. Isaiah prayed because he knew the effectiveness of prayer. And what about the New Testament church? Turn to the book of James. James chapter 5. You know, when you think of churches in the New Testament that are struggling churches, you probably usually think of the Corinthians, the Corinthians are full of trouble, full of sin, full of warfare, full of problems, much like the Galatians who too were struggling and battling their own fronts. But James is writing to churches that are also struggling. You get to James chapter 4, for example, and you find out that there is, there is all sorts of evil impulses in the church. There's all sorts of division and quarreling and fighting that he calls murder. And um, the church struggles, therefore, with faith. It struggles to believe God, to go to God in faith. 
When you get to chapter 5, amazing. But the rapidity of James's admonition to pray. Look at what he says in, in chapter 5, verse 13. And how many times he mentions the need for prayer. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. He must pray. Is that what you do when you're sick at home? Is that what you do when you're so sick you can't come to church? You spend the day in prayer? That's what you should do. Is that what you do when you're so overwhelmed by sicknesses? The doctors don't know what to do. They can't figure it out. Antibiotics are not helping anymore. People are praying everywhere for you and nothing seems to be lifting. What about you? You must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises, which is another form of prayer. Worship. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him. And apparently from this text, it seems as if he is so sick that he can't go to the elders. The elders have to go to him. That's how sick he is. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you will be healed. The admonition for one another theology rooted and grounded in prayer, praying for one another. Don't judge one another. Don't look down the nose of the person next to you who is struggling, battling, warring against sin and has fallen and has fallen into a snare. Pray for them. Put your hand on them. Help them in their healing process, especially if they have confessed and forsaken their sin. For, James goes on to say, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. You know what that means? The effective prayer of a righteous man means the effective prayer of a believer. Because an unrighteous man is a wicked man, is an unbelieving man, is an unregenerate man, and he is an unsaved man. God does not hear the prayer of the wicked. That's what the Bible teaches. They are actually an abomination to God. Because the only way that people can pray to God is through the access that Jesus has made. But an unbeliever is trying to get to God without the access of Jesus Christ. He's trying to get to God on his own, which is an abomination. Because you're trying to get to God on your own righteousness and not on the righteousness of Christ. Elijah was a man of like nature. He prayed, you see that? Earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Do not underestimate the effectiveness of prayer. Prayer. Keep a Keep a prayer journal. Keep a prayer log. Keep, a, keep, a, keep an account of what God is doing in prayer. Pray the word of God back to God. Say, God, this is what you've promised in your word that you would do. If I pray according to your will, oh God, let it be that my prayers are according to your will. For this reason, the burden of prayer is also connected to the mandate of prayer. And this is where... This is where we see that prayer is absolutely basic and fundamental to the Christian life. The epistle of James reminds us of the many injunctions in Scripture that call us to pray so that our burdens would be lifted. 
Pray so that our diseases would be healed. Pray for all manner of reasons. Augustine is very famous for saying, Lord, give what you command and command whatever you will. Well, God gives us the grace to pray and he commands us to pray because he's given us that grace. It was the it, was the, it, it is the natural byproduct of regeneration, right? Think back upon your conversion if you can. When you were converted, prayer was the most natural response in the world. God had saved you, liberated you, redeemed you, transformed you, and out of your heart flowed a response. A response in prayer. The Puritan William Grenall said, praying is the same to the new creature as crying is to the natural one. The child is not learned by art or example to cry, but instructed by nature. It comes into the world crying. Praying is not a lesson that is gotten by forms and rules of art, but flows from the principles of the new life itself. It's exactly what I was saying. So, I'm in good company. Your prayers flow out of regeneration. It is a byproduct of regeneration. If you do not have a prayer life, then you can be assured that you do not have a regenerate life either. They go together. Prayer is fundamental to the life of a believer. It is your basic identity as a Christian to be in prayer. It is the air that you and I breathe, or at least it ought to be. It is the Spirit through regeneration that gives us this ability, this principle, this impulse to pray. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 14 and 15, because here we get to the, to the mechanism of prayer, how it works, why it works the way it works. He says, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading the fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Isn't it amazing? As Paul is describing, one of the principal works of the Spirit in regenerating a soul of man, that one of the principal effects is prayer. The fact that you will respond to God as Father, as Abba. Abba is very important. Don't underestimate the word Abba. The word Abba means that you have an intimate acquaintance with your father. It's one thing to say a, a token prayer like you might hear on the news or that you might hear at a sporting event or something like that. You can always see the difference. Someone who doesn't really know God speaks to God as if he's the big genie in the sky, the, you know, the big man upstairs type of theology. Uh, well, Father, uh, our Heavenly Father, we just... And they show that they don't know God. But the Spirit puts it within your heart, not just to cry out in formality, but to cry out in intimacy. That you have an intimate connection with God so that you say, Daddy, as it were. That's the old Hebrew idiom, Abba. It was a term of endearment. It means that you are near and dear to your father. You have a personal relationship with him. You know him. You know him. You're acquainted with him. You love him. He's in your life. He brings you joy. He gives you good things. He answers your prayers. You're intimately connected to him, and you can't help but to call him terms of endearment. Beautiful. And that's what the Spirit does. 
Isn't it amazing that according to this passage, the one of the Spirit's works is that it eliminates fear. I love that. We have not been given a spirit of fear. You see that? Leading to bondage. Not fear, but as 2 Timothy tells us, power, right? 2 Timothy 2.7, sort of a parallel passage here, says, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Interesting, but that the Spirit works an attitude in the believer that looks like this. Power, love, and wisdom or discernment. That's what the word sophronismos can mean. Sophronismo, franismo. It's this idea of the mind, the thinking process. It gives us a spiritual thinking process. That is what the Spirit does. It imparts to us an attitude of spiritual discernment, something that the natural man cannot produce in himself. The believer's attitude in prayer, therefore, is a spirit of adoption. It is a spirit of childlike dependency on God. It is confidence in God as well because it is a spirit of power. It is a spirit of love, confident, confidence in knowing the love of God, that God loves you and accepts you in prayer. Everything in Scripture suggests that prayer is just the regular, frequent pattern of the Christian life, that our life is just filled with prayer. A prayer-filled life is the way the Christian should live. Samuel saw, uh, back in 1 Samuel chapter 12, he saw that the neglect of prayer was a sin. He said, he said in chapter 12, verse 23, he says, Far be it for me that I would sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Matthew Henry said, It is a sin, therefore, not to pray for the Israel of God. Spoken like a true covenant theologian. But what he's saying is that in our own parish, in our own shepherding, in our own churches, in our own context, if you would, it can be sin if we don't pray for one another. After all, the injunction by James to pray for one another is a command. It is not a suggestion. We are called to pray for one another. That means that that assumes the body life of the church. It assumes that you're connected to the church. It assumes that you know what's going on in your church. It assumes that you know what's going on in the life of the people around you and that you don't have your own personal space, your little bubble that people can't penetrate into, that people aren't evolved, that you keep people at a distance and don't let them know your troubles, your trials, your heartaches, your hardships, but that you open up and that you reveal what's going on, that you get real like Hezekiah, you get real with God, that you express, you go to the prophet Isaiah and you tell him that you are in deep need, that God needs to do something. Paul knew that. Paul knew it from experience. He knew in his missionary journeys, from his persecutions, from his imprisonments, from his afflictions, from his troubles in the church, his struggles with false teachers, and his efforts to purify the church, he knew that prayer was essential for the survival of the church. He knew it. And for the survival of his ministry. Spurgeon exposed the danger of even one member in the church neglecting their duty of prayer. Listen to what he says. Spurgeon says, a prayerless church member is a hindrance. He is in the body like a rotting bone or a decaying tooth 
Before long, since he does not contribute to the benefit of, of his brethren, he will become a danger and a sorrow to them. Neglect of private prayer is the locust which devours the strength of the church. Isn't that amazing? I hope that you will walk out of here today knowing and sensing your great debtedness to the church to pray for the church. What type of duty God has given you to labor in prayer for one another? This is why Scripture knows nothing of a prayerless Christian or of a prayerless Christianity. I can't understand people that don't pray in a prayer meeting. You're at a prayer meeting after all. <laughs> well, I understand that people are shy and we have different idiosyncrasies. I understand that some people struggle just to get one word out in a group. But if you're fueled by love, if you're fueled by, by, by the spirit of power and of a sound mind, you will not be able but to, but to pray. I think that our prayer meetings should look like this. We are falling over one another to pray. We are eager, greedy to pray for one another. We are selfish in prayer in that we want to be the ones to pray for everyone else's burdens. Think about approaching a prayer meeting with that attitude and it will change everything about it. That's why scripture knows nothing of sanctification or spiritual growth without prayer, nothing at all. This is why Paul exhorts us to pray perpetually, regularly, without ceasing. As a matter of fact, turn with me, Philippians chapter four. I'm gonna take you to two texts that show us that we need to be continually in prayer. And the first one is Philippians chapter four, beginning of verse six. Actually, here in this passage, 6 through 7, it gives us all, our, all the elements that we're looking at today. The neglect of prayer, the effectiveness of prayer, and the mandate of prayer. Paul says in this well-known, often-quoted passage, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so there, he addresses the neglect, the potential to neglect prayer for something else like anxiety, worry. I tell you, do you remember living in a time ever? Do you remember living in such a time where anxiety is so high? You see it everywhere. You see it in, in the hospitals. You see it in your family. You hear of people having anxiety attacks having irregular heartbeats because they're anxious, having health problems because of anxiety. It's amazing. We live in such an anxious world. But I tell you what, the Bible says, be anxious for nothing. What a daunting passage. You might be sitting there and say, what? Do you know what I'm up against this week? How is it possible that Paul would ever even think to tell me not to be anxious. Doesn't he understand what I have to deal with this week? Doesn't, doesn't he know the, the, the nature of my bills and the, the problems going on in my home and in my family? Be anxious for nothing. Wow. Looking around, it seems as if he should have said, be anxious for just one thing. <laughs> you know, because everything around us causes anxiety, it seems. But in everything, he says, by prayer. There's the mandate. Pray. Pray. Supplication. With thanksgiving. You see the word thanksgiving there? 
Thanksgiving means that we do not get off the hook just because we pray. Thanksgiving means we must pray in a certain way. See, all throughout the history of the Old Testament, if there's one thing God cannot bear, it is perfunctory prayer, false prayer, fake prayer, a prayer without a heart. As Jesus said, these people, they draw near to me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He was quoting the prophet Isaiah. Their hearts are far. So God wants you to do it with a thankful heart. And so don't stop praying and laboring with your heart and yourself until you get to a place where, okay, I'm praying now for real. I'm not just offering up a token prayer. I'm actually engaged. I'm actually thankful to God. And once you get there, I tell you, it changes everything. Let your requests be made known to God. And then look at the, look at the effectiveness of prayer in verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's just one effect of prayer. Now turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning of verse 16. You know this passage of Scripture. This is where Paul just gives a bullet list of commandments. <laughs> he just gets a, a, just like a gunshot, a shotgun of, of different exhortations, little short exhortations that are full of weight and significance and importance. He says, rejoice always. Another one of those seemingly impossible things to obey. But we can. I believe it. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. You see that? In everything, give thanks for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. And then the last thing I'll read is, do not quench the Spirit. Amazing. Now, punctuation in the Greek language, this is a continual flow of thought here. It all goes together. Do not quench the Spirit is attached to this just as much as it attached to prophesying. He's saying, don't quench the Spirit by neglecting to pray. Instead, pray without ceasing. In prayer, therefore, we see our burdens lifted, our joy refilled, our petitions are answered so that we leave God, we leave God knowing that we have met with an infinitely good God who hears us and who answers us according to his will. It is a demonic deception that leads people to stop to pray. Isn't it amazing that our trials can have that effect upon us? Oh, my, my, my situation is too hard. What is prayer going to do? In the time where you should pray above any other time, it is a deception to be lured away from the presence of God, to be lured away from time with God when you need it the most. Just like coming to church. Oh, I had a bad day this morning. My wife and I got in a fight. We're not going to church. If there's ever a time that you needed to go to church, it is that time right there. <laughs> you need the means of grace today, maybe more than you did last week. You got in an argument with your spouse. You need the church. You don't need to stay away from the church. You're listening to the wrong message at that point. Satan is just sitting there saying, great, I got it. It worked. No church because of a stupid little argument about a seatbelt or about lipstick or makeup or whatever you guys argue about. 
we argue about. <clears throat> Calvin, hey, let's get serious, guys. Back to Calvin. <laughs> I love what Calvin said. Calvin said, Christians should pray in order to alert themselves to seek God to exercise their faith by meditating on his promises, to unburden their cares by lifting themselves into God's bosom. Do you ever think like that when you pray? And finally, to testify that from him alone, all good for themselves and for others is hoped and is asked. That's the reality that happens in prayer. So, summing up, practically, the burden of prayer is rooted in the reality of the consequences of neglecting prayer and the benefits of taking advantage of praying. The consequences are a thousand to one. We must, therefore, take care that we are not neglecting prayer, either in private or in public, individually or corporately, whether in the church or in the home. The benefits are also infinitely precious so that we pray because we know that God hears. Your prayers are not hitting the ceiling. They're not hitting the walls of the house that you're meeting in. They're not bouncing off the carpet when you're on your knees. God hears prayer. Prayer is a transcendent frequency that God can hear and does hear. God moves through our prayers. He helps us through our prayers, and we help one another through our prayer. And if we neglect prayer, like Samuel, we can sin against the Lord by failing to pray for one another. We also pray because we know that Scripture teaches the effectiveness of prayer. Scripture everywhere assumes the efficacious nature of prayer. Prayer is is to in, prayer to intervene into our circumstances. Prayer to change our hearts. Prayer to change the heart of the king. Prayer to change the heart of your kids. Prayer to heal the sick. Prayer to advance the herald of the gospel. Prayer in order to join forces with missionaries, evangelists, pastors, parents in the cause of the gospel. I love being able to jump on Skype and to talk to Joseph Irvin, missionary in Mexico, and pray with him because we're linking arms in prayer. That's why God created technology, don't you know? That's why God created the internet. That's why he created cell phones. That's why he created the ability to get on a, on a signal like a cell phone signal. And, and, and even though it's probably rotting your brain with radiation, at least you can pray through a cell phone. That's why he made it. He made it so that missionaries can be encouraged. That's why. That's what we do in prayer. In prayer, we evoke the sovereign hand of God to come down to touch our lives by the power of his grace for his glory and according to his will. Finally, finally, prayer is rooted in the biblical mandate to pray. It's simply not an option for you and I to have a prayer life. And so it's time for us to get really, really honest. Write it down. Journal it. Put it, put it make a mental note. Today at dinner, talk about it. What kind of a prayer life do I have? 
And I'll be the first to tell you, I don't have the type of prayer life I need to have. I need a better prayer life, a more persistent prayer life, a more involved, a more intentional prayer life. And so that's something that you must talk about for the good of your soul, for the sake of your family, for the sake of the church. Reach over to your husband during dinner. Reach over to your wife. Say, honey, what kind of prayer life do we have? I don't know if we have any kind of prayer life. Okay, then maybe today is the day we start to have a prayer life. Pray about the sermon. Pray about what we heard. Pray about the needs that people told us about at church today. Prayer is wonderful because it means that you are a priest to your God, that you have direct access to God, that you can go to him freely at any time and transcend your circumstances, transcend your location. You don't have to go to a temple. You don't got to go to a confessional. You don't got to go to a church. You don't got to go to a pastor. You got to go to your knees. And if you don't want to go to your knees, just go to God directly, privately, in the quietness of your heart and pray. That is the beauty of prayer. I'll leave you with this. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6.18, pray at all times in the Spirit. What does that mean? It means that it is the fruit of the Spirit that you would pray. That's what that means. It doesn't mean speak in tongues. That's not what that means. It means pray according to the Spirit's resources in your life. That's what it means. That's that's when you know that you're praying in the Spirit. When you're praying in such a way that you are asking God to change you, you're asking God to sanctify you, you're asking God to change your circumstances, you're praying according to God's will, you're praying according to God's word, that is praying in the spirit. Let's pray. Father, uh, we pray that you would give us a, a better understanding today in the 21st century where everything around us is spinning around so quickly, where we get bombarded day and night with media, news, technology. It seems like our lives are moving at light speed. And it seems almost absurd to say that we're going to stop and take really any length of time to spend time in prayer. But Lord, for the sake of your church and the sake of your great name, for the sake of your glory, God, let it be that we would be given to prayer in our lives. Lord, we pray, let it be that our lives would be marked by prayer, characterized by prayer, so that anyone looking in would say, they pray. Father, I pray prayer would just be a basic, assumed presupposition of our church. Fill our church with prayer, God. Help us to be like the early church in this respect, that we devote ourselves to prayer. Just as much as we devote ourselves to doctrine, that we be devoted to prayer. God, forgive us. Forgive me. Forgive us of our prayerlessness. We repent. And we ask you, have mercy on us. Give us endurance. We've need of endurance. We've need of strength to pray. Just like we have need of strength to study your word, to listen to a sermon, to sit through a service, we need strength to pray. Strengthen us, O God. In Jesus' name, amen.